welcome to episode 99 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. We've spent the last few episodes looking at how Mao discussed some of the major things that he had learned about making revolution during the time between the autumn harvest uprising of 1927 and the reconquest of the Jingongshan by the communists in the autumn of 1928. Now, I want to move on and consider how things played out as the communists tried to consolidate their rule in the Jingongshan once again, while the nationalists geared up once again to try to drive the communists from the area. When the communists succeeded in recapturing most of their former base area during the couple months following the August defeat of 1928, the national center of the Guomindang began to take notice and decided that it needed to take action against the communists because the efforts of the Hunan and Jiangsha Guomindang were clearly not cutting it. On November 7, 1928, Chiang Kai-shek created a military command which was to begin preparations to lead 30,000 nationalist troops in a coordinated assault on the base area from five different directions. Looking back on this period, uh, about a year later, uh, a little less than a year later, in September 1929, Chen Yi described the situation like this in a report that he wrote to the Communist Central Committee. Quote, The counter-revolutionary government had believed Jews and Mao's forces had already been wiped out in the August defeat or could no longer pose any major threat to its rule. They were astonished to see their unexpected comeback. This, in addition to the shared need of both Hunan and Jiangsha provinces to annihilate the forces led by Judah and Mao Zedong and to break the Jingong, San, the Jingong base before the outbreak of the war between Chiang Kai-shek and Guangxia warlords, led to a joint suppression campaign by three provinces against the Jingong Mountains in January. So, as you might have already inferred from this passage from Chen Yi's report, Chiang Kai-shek was mainly concerned about this rival warlord coalition, the Guangxia clique, which at the time controlled an army of about 230,000 troops. These Guangxia warlords had been working as part of the Guomindang, but after a falling out with Chiang Kai-shek, they attempted to work with other warlords to oust Chiang. So in early 1929, they tried to move their forces up into Hunan province from their southern stronghold, but were defeated by Chiang Kai-shek. So it was this upcoming conflict that Chiang was concerned that the communists would interfere with, and which initially prompted him to take notice of the communists in the Jingongshan and to make the first effort coordinated from the National Guomindang Center to wipe them out. The Guomindang offensive against the communists was launched on January 1st, 1929. However, it was preceded by a two-month-long period of preparation, which featured a punishing economic blockade as its main feature. An economic blockade had existed in some form or another ever since the communists had taken control of a substantial piece of territory more than a year earlier. But there are blockades, and there are blockades. In a situation where there are family connections and long-standing ties among the people living on both sides of a border, and when there are many ways to cross from territory controlled by one side in a conflict to territory controlled by the other side, it can take considerable effort to impose a truly punishing blockade rather than just setting up checkpoints among the, along the most traveled routes. Blockading the communist base was a form of waging war that actually favored the Guomindang forces. 
In warfare that required mobility and initiative, the communists always had the advantage, so long as the numbers were nearly comparable. And there were many instances where outnumbered communists badly defeated their Guomindong adversaries. But with economic blockades, all that was involved was setting down a body of troops in a relatively passive position along roadways. And these checkpoints could often be positioned near urban centers and so not far from supplies or reinforcements. And there were enough local merchants and landlord militia members who sided with the Guomindong that there was no lack of local knowledge regarding mountain trails and the various routes of communication possible between the red and white areas. It was simply a matter of having enough troops at hand to cover all of these various possible routes. So given enough troops, this was a form of warfare that the Guomindong could excel at. And as it turns out, they did. The economic screws were really tightened on the communists in the fall of 1928. Several regiments of Guomindong troops, along with several thousand militia members, were deployed along along roads, trails, and navigable waterways to keep trade from reaching the communist base area. On the one side, the peasants of the Jingangshan were prevented from trading the timber, tea, tea, tea oil, and opium that they produced. This not only affected the peasant producers who relied on these products for cash, but also uh, the good number of people who relied on work transporting these products. But more importantly, the indispensable products that people in Jingangshan relied on from outside the mountain redoubt were kept from arriving. Uh, This was mainly salt, cloth, and medicine. There were two main ways in which the communists responded to the economic blockade. Firstly, they did what they could to develop their own production of necessary items in the base area itself. And secondly, they tried to smuggle goods across the blockade themselves, and also they encouraged smugglers to attempt to circumvent the blockade. In attempting to make the base area self-sufficient, the communists were able to draw on measures that Wang Zuo, uh, one of the leaders of the 32nd Regiment, had been taking back when he was a bandit leader, before the communists had even come to the area. When he had been a bandit, Wang's gang had seized a small metalworking shop that had been used to make counterfeit coins. Now, the communists used this operation to mint their own coinage with revolutionary symbols printed on the coins to make up for the shortage of cash coming into the base area from outside. Likewise, former bandit gunsmiths expanded a shop originally set up during Wang Zuo's bandit days to produce, upgrade, and repair the communists' weapons. This was where the cannons made from hollowed-out tree trunks were produced that we discussed back in episode 94. And you might remember from back in episode 65 that Wang Zuo had begun his adult life as an itinerant tailor. He actually made use of his tailoring expertise to set up a small clothing factory with sewing machines and cloth that had been captured in a raid. Um, This factory produced uniforms, bandoliers, and food bags for the Red Army. Uh, Other efforts at uh, import substitution within the base area had varying levels of success. Uh, Attempts were made to substitute local herbs for medicines that were no longer available, uh, and desperation for salt was so great that efforts were made to recover salt from the earthen walls of old buildings and even from the residue left on the inside 
of wooden urine buckets. In order to encourage smugglers to attempt to cross the blockade, the communists were prepared to pay exorbitant prices for smuggled goods, especially salt. He Zizhen, uh, Mao's wife, had been tasked with acquiring newspapers from outside the base area to keep the leadership informed about national events, and this became particularly difficult, so the smugglers began wrapping their goods in newspapers, which the communists would then also buy at a very high price. The communists also conducted propaganda, publicizing their policy of non-interference with the activities of small and mid-level merchants, uh, just in case there was any suspicion on the part of potential smugglers that the communists would confiscate their goods. Inevitably, some smugglers made it through, and a small trickle of salt and other goods made it past the blockade. But it was not enough. Mao addressed the declining living conditions of the Red Army in his November 25th, 1928 report to the Central Committee that we talked about last episode. Here's what he said about this in two short sections of the report, titled Problems of Supply and Problems of the Sick and Wounded. Here's Mao. Problems of Supply. The Hunan Provincial Committee has asked us to pay attention to the material life of the soldiers and to make it at least better than that of the average worker or peasant. At present, the very reverse is the case. No doubt few people's lives are so miserable as that of the Red Army soldiers. Because of the shortage of funds, each man gets only five cents a day for food, apart from rice, which is supplied by local sources. And often, even this rate is hard to maintain. The common saying of the soldiers overthrow the capitalists, and eat pumpkin every day, reflects their misery. Probably there are not many in this world who suffer more bitterly than the Fourth Red Army. The monthly cost of food alone, other items being provided for by the Provincial Committee, is more than 10,000 yuan, which is obtained entirely from expropriating the local bullies. But, first of all, you can expropriate only once in a given locality. Afterward, there would be nothing to take. Second, we are tightly surrounded by the enemy, and in order to get at the local tyrants, we often have to break through the enemy's lines, so we cannot go too far. Third, the hostile armies must be taken seriously, and one or two battalions would not be able to raise funds on their own. We need many soldiers in order to raise funds, so the problem is not a simple one. We now have cotton padding enough to make winter clothing for the whole army of 5,000 men, the regular Red Army but we still do not have the cloth, and we do not know when this problem can be resolved. Cold as the weather is, many of the soldiers are still wearing only two layers of thin clothing. Fortunately, we are accustomed to hardship. Besides, everybody puts up with the same hardship, from the army commander to the cook. Everyone has five cents for food. And when pocket money is dispensed, no one gets more than the other. Everyone has his 20 or 40 cents. Everybody realizes that he is suffering on behalf of the proletariat, so there is no animosity toward anyone. Despite this, financial problems have been and remain very serious. Problems of the sick and wounded. After every engagement, there are wounded. Because of malnutrition, cold, and other factors, many are ill. We have founded a Red Army hospital on the Jingangshan, which employs both Chinese and Western medicine for diagnosis and treatment. 
but we are short of both medicine and doctors, and the problem is very serious. In September, we had over 200 sick and wounded soldiers, and after the recent battle at Yongxin, the number increased. At present, the number of people in the hospital, including staff, is over 800. If we do not take care of the sick and the wounded, the morale of the army will be shaken. If we want to take good care of them, we face truly great difficulties getting medical equipment and supplies. The Hunan Provincial Committee promised us drugs a long time ago, but we have still not seen any. We still hope the Central Committee and the two Provincial Committees will send us a few Western doctors and some iodine tablets. Okay, this thing that Mao ends with here, asking for some Western doctors and iodine tablets, begs some clarification. So, I think that Mao's main expectation here is that he would get some Chinese doctors who are trained in Western medicine. However, we have to keep in mind that only about a year and a half had passed since the legions of Soviet advisors and aid workers, which included doctors, had left China. As we've discussed at some length in this podcast, they'd been, a, they'd been key in the creation of the National Revolutionary Army and played an important role in uh, aiding and advising that army during the first half of the Northern Expedition. It doesn't seem unreasonable at all for Mao to have hoped for more direct Soviet aid, which, after all, had not entirely disappeared with the retreat of the Soviet forces from China in the middle of 1927, as we discussed in episode 85 and elsewhere. In the 1930s, the Chinese Communist military will get a couple volunteer North American doctors, uh, Norman Bethune and George Hottam, and Hottam will uh, end up joining the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but at least for the time being, Mao is going to have to wait on the aid that he requested from the Communist Center. So, returning to our discussion of living conditions for Red Army soldiers during this period of extreme economic blockade, We have memoirs from soldiers in the Red Army which flesh out what it was like for individual people to live through what Mao described in the report to the Central Committee. One soldier who was healing up from a wound during this period described a diet that consisted almost entirely of red rice and pumpkin soup and having no meat to eat for three months. For warmth, he only had one unlined set of clothes and a single blanket. Both in this quote and in our earlier quote from Mao, this issue of eating just pumpkin and rice comes up. Uh, I think for those of us in the U.S. Where, where pumpkin is mainly a special occasion food, eaten in autumn as a pie, and when we do make soup out of it, it's, it's a kind of gourmet soup and not eaten very frequently, at least by most people, uh, it can be hard to conceptualize eating pumpkin as a kind of hardship food. Uh, I know I had to take a step back and think about it for a minute, uh, what it would be, what it would mean to, to use pumpkin not as a tasty adjunct to an otherwise sufficient diet, but as, along with rice, my main source of nutrition for months and months at a time. Uh, anyways, that might be a helpful mental exercise for anyone listening to this who, like me, uh, has some initial trouble visualizing what a diet exclusively composed of pumpkin and rice might be like. Um, Judah, in his memoir as recorded by Agnes Smedley, captures the way in which an initially optimistic spirit at the beginning of the autumn declined as the Guomindang brought in more and more troops and tightened the blockade. Quote, From our base on the Jingangshan, we could look down on the enemy troops, General Zhu said. 
We knew all their movements and even watched them cook their meals. On the last night of the autumn harvest festival, when the moon was full, we sent troops down the mountain to capture six enemy companies and camped at the base of one of the trails. A couple of hours later, they marched up the trail with them and their supplies. The six companies, being peasants, joined us. A week later, a battalion of the blockading troops deserted to us because they were Sichuan troops who had heard that I was also a Sichuan man. More and more enemy troops came up to tighten the blockade. The red troops swooped down the mountain on night raids for weeks, but these soon cost more ammunition than they were worth and resulted in heavy casualties. The mass movement in the countryside beyond had been crushed or driven underground. Rice was rationed on Jingongshan, where the troops had put in fields of squash. Week after week, squash was their only vegetable. From the end of September onward, the fighting front was frozen, and by December, the Red Troops began to starve. 5,000 men filled the hospitals and barracks. Some were wounded, but most of them were suffering from hunger, and some had pneumonia and tuberculosis. It was wet and cold, and they had little warm clothing. The effect of these difficult conditions inevitably led to an increase in desertions from the Red Army. Memoirs from this period understandably emphasize the staunchness of the Red Army and their peasant supporters in holding out amidst difficult conditions. The dominant theme is, as we just quoted Mao as writing in his report to the Central Committee, that everybody realizes that he is suffering on behalf of the proletariat. And the accomplishment of Mao, Judah, and the other leaders of the Red Army in holding the force together through these conditions is remarkable. However, when we consider these difficult conditions, uh, especially in light of Mao's comments in his report to the Central Committee about the background of many Red, many Red Army fighters as bandits or vagrants, as we discussed last episode, it should really be no surprise that while a surprisingly large number of Red Army soldiers stuck it out through these incredibly difficult conditions, there was a notable loss of troops through desertions. Uh, the combination of poor diet and desertion had the effect of diminishing the fighting capacity of the Red Army. And this took place in the presence of the daily mounting threat of more and more Guomindang troops assembling outside the base area and making preparations for launching a massive suppression campaign against the communists. Some sort of drastic action was going to have to be taken, and it became clear to Mao and Judah that waiting out the siege on top of the Jingong Mountains was not going to be a viable option. While Mao and Zhu were trying to figure out what to do, a major development took place in early December, which in the long run turned out to be highly significant and positive for the communists, but in the short run created some new difficulties. As we discussed back in episode 93, a 23-year-old Guomindang colonel who had secretly joined the Communist Party at the beginning of 1928, named Peng Dehuai, had led his troops in revolt back in July and had carved out a small communist base area in the Jiangsha-Hunan-Hubei border region, a couple hundred kilometers to the north of the Jingang Mountain base area. Upon recognizing the danger that the Jingangshan base area was in due to the blockade and preparations that were being made by the Guomindang to muster a massive force to overrun the base, Peng decided to send about half his force, 800 men approximately, to aid Mao and Zhu's forces. Peng gives a description of how he led his men to meet up with the 4th Red Army in his autobiography, which I'll read to you here with a little clarifying commentary of my own. 
Local peasants had reaped their autumn harvest, and the November weather was fine and warm at the time the Border Area Party Special Committee was set up. Leading five companies, Tang Daiyuan and some other comrades and I were preparing to start for the Jingang Mountains when information came saying that white army troops from Hunan and Jiangsu provinces were again ready to attack the border area in a joint suppression. To upset the operation plan of the enemy in Jiangsu, our army took Wanzai County seat by assault. Staying there for a week, we raised more than 10,000 silver dollars and replenished the army's stock of winter clothing. Now, two or three enemy regiments from Jiangsu advanced on Wanzai from Nanchang. When they were a half-day's march from the county seat, we set out for the Jingang Mountains, going through the area between Pingxiang and Yichun. Uh, so basically what um, Peng's saying here, um, in case you didn't pick up on it, is that you know they'd launched, they'd, after they'd launched their revolt in July, they'd succeeded in setting up their little governing body, the Border Area Party Special Committee, up in um, the Hunan, Jiangsu, Hubei border region where they had set up their base area. And um, he was preparing to take some troops down to Jing the Jingangshan to meet up with Mao. And they, um, his base area is, was facing its own suppression campaign. Uh, and, uh, and before taking off, they kind of diverted the, uh, and, and thwarted the uh, Guomindang troops by going and taking over a county seat, staying there a week, uh, getting a bunch of money and winter clothing, um, you know, basically, you know, looting the city. And um, then uh, they kind of stayed there, diverted the enemy to try to attack them there. And then, you know, when the enemy was a half day of march away, they're like, okay, good. Now that they're coming for here, we're heading out, abandoning the city, and we're going to take our troops down to meet up with, uh, with Mao Zedong and Judah in the Jingongshan. Uh, okay, continuing reading from the autobiography. Chairman Mao, who was then Front Committee Secretary of the Fourth Red Army, Fourth Army of the Red Army, sent Comrade He Changgong with 200 to 300 men to meet us. They arrived at a place 40 li to the north of Lianhua County seat before we got there and hid in the mountains flanking the road. Um, a li is about um, is, is an old Chinese unit of measure. It's about a third of a mile long. Uh, we spent more than an hour trying to get in touch with them. They said their task was to make contact with us from the 5th Army. Um, the 5th Army, um, you might recall from back last time we talked about Peng Dewey, is, is what, um, what he had named his rebel force. Lianhua County seat, and Lianhua County is just on the uh, northern border of the Jingang Shan base area. So Lianhua County seat had a garrison of one white army regiment. At night, we slipped past it to the west and headed for Longsha Township, now Ningong County seat. Um, this is a place that would most Chinese readers would recognize as having been solidly within the control of uh, Mao and Zhu in the base area. We got there a few days before the anniversary of the Guangzhou uprising. There we met 4th Army Commander Zhu De. Next, we went to Tseping and met party representative Mao Zedong. The first thing Mao Zedong said to us was, So you've taken our road too. Conditions are ripe for making revolution in China. Even if a socialist revolution cannot triumph, a democratic revolution will. I realized, realized some comrades in our 5th Army did not have a clear understanding of the question and mixed up the two revolutions. 
They thought the elimination of land rent exploitation and elimination of capitalist exploitation were the same thing. Though I knew that this view was not quite sound, I myself did not have a good enough understanding of the question to have anything to say. A few days later, the 4th and 5th armies got together to hold a high-spirited rally to mark the anniversary of the Guangzhou Uprising, uh, which we talked about back in episode 75 um, in this podcast, um, which um, that was just uh, December of 1927. Uh, We built a platform which was not so steady when the speakers mounted, it collapsed. Some said it was not auspicious. Never mind, Army Commander Judah said. If we fall, we shall rise and fight again. Let's rebuild it. Once again, we put up the platform. Army Commander Judah and Party Representative Mao Zedong mounted it and addressed the rally. I spoke too. I do not remember what we said at that time. This question of the relationship between the democratic and socialist revolutions and what leading Chinese communists thought about these different revolutionary concepts and how the way they thought about these concepts impacted how they carried out the revolution and formulated revolutionary policies is actually going to be an ongoing issue in the Chinese revolution and is not going to turn out to be a very simple thing and doesn't, in my opinion, uh, lend itself to anything so simple as giving a concise definition for what's involved in a democratic versus a socialist revolution, especially since we will see the ideas put forward for differentiating these, differentiating these concepts very widely over time, and we will see some major disagreements among Chinese communist leaders on this topic. So I don't want to take the time to elaborate on it right now, but we will have quite a bit more to say on this question in the future. Now, on the surface, it might seem like the appearance of 800 new troops in the Jingangshan would be a straight win for the communists there, since it increased their fighting force. However, in the immediate context of being in a state of siege and not carrying on active fighting or or much active fighting, the addition of new mouths to feed actually turned out to be a major logistical burden on an already taxed supply system. This was a 15 to 20% increase in the number of troops on the Jingong Massif, and food stores would now run out that much faster. In addition, the 5th Red Army forces had not been put through the sort of political training that Mao had been emphasizing in his training of the 4th Red Army. In particular, the 5th Red Army had a tendency to mistreat civilian populations and engage in what the communists termed roving bandit gang type behavior. Pung gives some examples uh, where the 5th Red Army had mistreated and consequently alienated civilian populations in his autobiography. Uh, here's one incident that Pung relates. Quote, Peasants at Zhajin turned against us because a cursed commander, as nicknamed by then, of the Pingjiang guerrillas, uh, the Pingjiang guerrillas would have just been a way of referring to the 5th Red Army, had burned their houses and killed their folk. The peasants had been kind and warm to the Red Army before, but now they hoisted white flags to show they supported the White Army and attacked us with homemade cannon. The party organization at Pingjiang was seriously influenced by the line of reckless action at that time. If this problem was not solved, it would be useless to talk about establishing base areas, expanding the Red Army, and deepening the agrarian revolution. So, While the arrival of the 5th Red Army in the Jingangshan base area was, from a long-term historical perspective, a major event in the revolutionary process, where a major figure, Peng Dehuai, united his forces with those of Mao and Zhu, in the short term, it created a major problem in terms of both supply and discipline. 
Okay, next episode, we will see how the communists end up dealing with the blockade that was strangling the Jingongshan. Uh, but before we go, one little bit of housekeeping. Uh, some time ago, I uploaded a Chinese movie, Breaking with Old Ideas, to YouTube uh, because of how it spoke to some issues raised in episode 13. Apparently, a media company in China has now acquired the rights to the film, or at least convinced YouTube that it owns the rights to the film, and I've been ordered to take the film down for copyright infringement. Now, while I think that a very strong case can be made that the film is actually in the public domain, uh, that would require a legal battle, which I'm not prepared to fund. However, uh, even though I've been forced to take the movie down, if you just search for it on YouTube, uh, you'll be able to see that a number of other people have uploaded it there, so it remains accessible. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if this Chinese media company has plans to monetize the film in some way, which I think would be totally contrary to the filmmaker's intentions, uh, but quite the commentary on the state of socialism in China today. All right, that's it for now. Uh, take care until next time.